Well, hey there, Todd. We're back again for another episode of Life and Times, and uh, we're catching up to the present day. We last spoke about Boston, and uh, and then you hinted to us that then you'd let us know about going from Boston to, to Houston this time. Well, yes. Thanks a lot, Rob. Uh, we are getting up to the present time. Um, so I'll just kind of start out by giving the end the end results of the Boston situation. Uh, when I was in Boston at the New England Institute at Mount Ida College, as I had mentioned the time before, um, it was somewhat of a discouraging experience. There were wonderful people up there. And of course, I was well familiar with the city because I'd been a student there. And uh, Boston, you know, the geography of Boston doesn't change much because there's nowhere for them to change the geography. It's uh, such a compact, you know, people think Boston's a really big, big city, but the area is very populated, but the city of Boston geographically is not particularly a large, a large area. And so while I was up there, I had a very good friend of mine uh, some of your listeners will remember him. His name was George Poston. And George and I, George had been uh, per, uh, an instructor at Southern Illinois University. And then he uh, became the chairman of the mortuary science department at Southern Illinois. And then uh, the job at the Commonwealth Institute of Funeral Service in Houston came open and George was hired, um, and George was hired while I was still with Lowen and was there at uh, the time I was at uh, the New England Institute. Well, the phone rings one morning, and this shocking, shocking, utterly just a showstopper call came in that George Poston had dropped dead at an, and he was headed to an NFDA conference in Milwaukee. And he and Jim Augustine, who was at that time the chairman of Milwaukee Area Technical Mortuary Science Program, they had walked into George's hotel room. And George just sat down in a chair, put his head back, and he died. He just died right then. Um, evidently some massive coronary cardiac uh, episode. And I was just absolutely flabbergasted because George uh, had done all of my American board accreditation visits. He was the go-to guy for me, as was Dick Smith from Purdue University. And we all got along very well. They were very fair and thorough in their uh, assessments of the different programs that I was uh, responsible for. And so George, so the, the college, uh, uh, the school in Houston uh, went with about a year without a, uh, an appointment for the new president. And during that year, they had a president, an interim president by the name of Stuart Moen who was a highly, highly capable man. And I'll have more to say about uh, Stuart in a little bit. But 
one thing led to another and the overture was made. Uh, the phone call came in one night in Boston as would I be interested in looking at that job. And I, and I was interested in it, uh, uh, not just because of the college, but um, because my family, my brother and his wife and his children lived in Houston. So I felt that it would be, um, you know, a valuable um, entree to get reconnected with family that I hadn't connected with for many years. So in 2002, um, I, I got the job. I, and, and many of your viewers will, our listeners will uh, know that SCI was the principal um, manager of the Commonwealth Institute. Commonwealth used to be part of the Pierce Mortuary Schools that was owned by Bill Pierce. And Bill Pierce and Bob Waltrip knew each other very well and they made a swap uh, for the Royal Bond Chemical Company in St. Louis. Uh, SCI would give that up to Pierce and then uh, Pierce would give up the Commonwealth Institute uh, for, uh, to SCI. SCI had already started their own mortuary school in Houston. So there was a series of years there that there were two mortuary colleges in uh, Houston. Now it's always, you know, my personal opinion is, is that we have enough mortuary colleges, right? And we've had, we've had enough mortuary schools for a long, long, long time. Um, and so when you see cities that have two mortuary schools, you know, you, there's always a story behind why the second schools got started. And usually it's based on some type of dissatisfaction, uh, a political uh, a situation that's come up that there's people not satisfied. So we'll just start our own school. And uh, they've done that in Canada uh, before. Uh, that we'll just start another school up because somebody's uh, offended us or something. Uh, so, but, but to their credit, they were able to merge the Institute of Funeral Service and then the Commonwealth College of Mortuary Science is what it was called. So when I went down there, it was a very nice facility. Um, and I found that the people that were at the mortuary college, as I found on several of my life journeys, is the people, you know, the people inside the building, same thing with the funeral home. It's the people that make the culture and the environment. Um, and so at Commonwealth, we had, um, uh, uh, Chris Layton, uh, Chris Layton was um, from, uh, he's from Arizona and then went to California. And then he came back to uh, Texas uh, uh, to uh, work at Commonwealth. And he was well, uh, he was a very, very fine person. We, we did well with him. And then Stuart Mullen uh, was, was the dean of academics and um, 
So they, there was a Patsy, uh, Miss Patsy Marino was the registrar of the school. And she, um, uh, there, there was just a, a real um, esprit de corps of uh, human beings that um, um, put that whole program together. And then we were able to get some significant things done. Um, we were able to uh, get a contract with Harris County uh, where the students, we remodeled the embalming area. And instead of one uh, prep table, we put uh, three in and put a refrigerator in. Um, I think we spent $150,000 on the, on the project. And, but we got this Harris County indigent burial contract and Harris County unbelievably has about 600 indigent dead a year that Harris County is responsible for burial at the county cemetery. It was a absolute gold, golden for mortuary education uh, because the students were, and this, we had already had the contract with Baylor University Medical School and with the University of Texas Medical School to do their anatomical embalming. Uh, there's nothing wrong with anatomical embalming except it's unbelievably limited. Uh, as you know, you can't do any aspiration. You can only do a one point injection. You're, you know, you're using 20 gallons of preservative chemical. Uh, so, but when we got the Harris County contract, so the students, fortunately were able to see cases that they would never ever probably see again when they went back to their hometown funeral home. Um, and then the add to it was that we dressed the bodies. We had a church in Houston that took it upon themselves to do clothing drives. And their mission was to give the clothes to the mortuary school and we use those clothes to dress the indigent dead. And then on top of that, the students were able to do the funerals. Now, albeit the funerals were not done at the college, they were done at the county cemetery and there were time limits. And, but, but it was a wonderful experience uh, for the students. And I was, uh, I think it was maybe in, in in my career, that contract with Harris County might have been one of the most important educational uh, endeavors that I've ever been involved with as far as the art and science of embalming uh, create. And so I, um, I was there for three years and then, um, David Fitzsimmons, who we've talked about, uh, that I worked with at Cincinnati and at Lowen, uh, he was doing some independent, he was doing work with John Thomas. Uh, John Thomas was a funeral home broker advisor out of Florida, a very, very bright man. And Fitzsimmons was working with him and he had a client in Decatur, Georgia. And the client in Decatur, Georgia was named Ralph S. Turner. And Ralph owned 
A.S. Turner and Son indicator. I had never considered relocating to uh, Georgia, uh, but Ralph and I had known each other already because Ralph was a very faithful member of the National Funeral Directors Association. And actually, in the, in the 1970s, Ralph was on his way to become president of NFDA, but in the middle of that, his older brother died, and Ralph had to step up to the plate to become the general manager of the funeral home. And the funeral home, at one time, was doing 1,000 to 1,300 funerals a year. <clears throat> it was a huge building, but I, I singled Ralph out because uh, Al Marsh and Mr. Heafy and some of these seminal men uh, in my life, uh, seminal funeral professionals in my life, Ralph Turner was, was one of them. There is no question. Uh, Ralph was one of the finest human beings that I've ever met. He had a sense of humor. Uh, he could tell a story and he and, and families of the, he was a very well liked uh, within the community of uh, Decatur, Georgia. Uh, the firm by all accounts uh, revolved around Ralph's personality. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I'll give you an example of how nice of a fellow he was. We were going down North Decatur Road. He was driving. He had a big old Oldsmobile 98. And Ralph's driving. And Ralph's uh, 83 years, 83, 85 years old now. And he's driving. And there's a, uh, there's a uh, transit bus trying to weave in and out of traffic to go on his appointed rounds to pick up uh, passengers. And I don't know if any of your listeners have ever driven around Atlanta, right? I mean, you know, there's some of the nicest people on the face of the earth before, until they get behind the wheel of a car, right? And then all bets are off and it is honking and giving nonverbal, um, profane gestures, mouthing words, uh, flashing lights, cutting the bus off. And this poor bus driver, I, he, he's having a hell of a time getting to his rounds because nobody's letting him in traffic. And I'm in the passenger seat, and I remember Ralph. He didn't, he didn't say a word, just looked straight ahead. And as we got up to the back of the bus, Ralph blinks his lights, and Ralph waves the bus over and he says to himself, and he goes, go ahead, my friend. He goes, you've had enough trouble today, right? And so the bus goes out and I, I'm sitting there because I'm the one that would be flashing the lights and screaming at the bus driver, right? I, I'm totally impatient with that stuff. And I looked at Ralph and I, I did, I said, I said, Ralph, I will never, ever be as nice a human being as you are. And he didn't say a damn thing. He just kept driving the car. Um, Ralph was um, just a good guy, and he just loved uh, being a funeral director. Um, so the uh, Atlanta years 
were made uh, golden for me because of my relationship uh, with Ralph Turner. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't say that everybody, uh, I wouldn't say everybody else at Turner's uh, approved of me or, or, was, or had any fondness for me. Uh, but Ralph and I, Ralph and I became really, really good friends over the years. And then he died in two, 2008, and um, he had come over to my apartment for dinner. So uh, his last night on earth, and I had made the 21 Club Hamburgers, um, which was a recipe that I got from the 21 Club in New York City. Uh, these hamburgers were just out of the world, out of the world up there. And I, and I went on a long shot and I asked the um, waiter, I said, you know, could the chef share this recipe? And the chef came out at, at the 21 Club and told me the recipe. Uh, and so I made these hamburgers and Ralph ate two of them that night. And then the next day they didn't come to the funeral home. Um, and they went over and they found him that he had died. He was 88 years old uh, when he died. Um, and uh, there's all kinds of Turner stories about Ralph. Uh, he was a, uh, actually, he was a pilot in the Second World War. And his job was not to shoot down enemy aircraft. His job was to take 10 55-gallon drums of gasoline from India into China and drop them off while he's being shot at by the Japanese, All right? Okay, so, so I said to him one time, and, and the plane, okay, he told me one time, the plane could only go up to like, 4,000 feet and the mountains that he's going through to get over into China were like 5,000 feet. So Ralph's got these drums of gasoline and he's maneuvering around these mountain peaks and he's being shot at at the same time. And I finally said to him one time, Ralph, I said, Ralph, how'd you do that every day? How did you get out of bed and do that every day? And Ralph looked at me and he said, I thought I was going to die every day I got in that plane, that, that was, this was it. And then he told me another one that out of nowhere, nowhere, because he and I both like Canadian club whiskey, right? And, uh, and out of nowhere, he's over in India, a case of Canadian club whiskey shows up in India during the Second World War. And and then the next day, a case of spam shows up. And so the guys, they had this case of Canadian club, but they wanted ice cubes for the whiskey, which I can totally understand that, right? And, uh, and so they made their own ice maker out of pipes and and they jerry-rigged this refrigerator and ralph said when they turned the, well, the water on the thing just blew up water went all over the place but they got their ice made and so i'm just telling you that because ralph was a charming charming human being 
uh, and he really was able to not, he took funeral service very seriously, but he was very pleasant about it. There was not, he just did not have an edge to him. Uh, and it was an honor to work with him. Um, I would say Al Marsh and uh, Ralph Turner and uh, Mr. Heafy, uh, they're, they're the three that come out uh, as the most influential people in my, in my career. Um, and of course, these are people that are not with us anymore. There are countless, countless uh, friends and colleagues that are still working that have had tremendous impacts uh, on my attitudes and my and my work in this great profession. Well, Todd, it's um, for, first of all, it was uh, nice to hear a little bit of the of the background of Commonwealth because we we've never really talked about it. You know, we knew that that was there when our friendship started to grow. It was the first time that we got together for an extended period of time was when I came to Atlanta and spent some time with you and you took me into Turner's and your office there, much bigger than the office that you're in now. And I remembered like, Todd, what? And you had all these filing cabinets. And I said, what's all that? He says, well, those are all my notes and my presentations and history and at that time, that's when we kind of started. I said, Todd, we've got to do something with your knowledge. And that's when we started working together. But also at that time, you had told me, and I believe it was, I, I believe Mr. Turner had died. And in, when you spoke of him, you were quite, you know, you're quite sad about it because you said that, you know, he would, he would come into that office there and you would just talk and talk and talk and he was a student of history and uh, loved that. So I'm sure your impact on him was uh, was mutually beneficial. The other the other gentleman that I failed to mention was Harry Rath. That's uh, totally I, I have to correct that error uh, that Harry was absolutely seminal in my uh, career. But also, I think it's very fair and appropriate and the ethical integrity thing to do. You know, there have been a number of people in my career that have taken an intense dislike to me. There have been a number of individuals in my career that found tremendous issues with my work and, and my approach to this. So I, I don't want to present myself that this has just been one home run after another because most of the time, I, uh, the home runs, uh, they eluded me. Um, you know, I, it isn't, it, it is not what I had planned in my life uh, to be a speaker and a writer and a teacher. I did not plan on that. Uh, so I, I just want to correct that. I've had tremendously fortunate relationships with funeral directors, and I, really value my friendships with funeral directors but here and there now and then every once in a while i've run into situations where it just wasn't a fit um and there was a, they there was a th a lot of stuff they didn't like about me at times uh so i just want to say that and get it off my chest and we move on to the next sessions well and todd that's kind of the purpose of, of what we're doing here, right? We're, we're, we're highlighting the life and times and um, 
And you know what? I don't think we need to give um, much spotlight on on the people that you know were the detractors and maybe uh, didn't help you uh, along the way because you've given way more than you've received. And so uh, I would view people like that would have, um, if they would have had a more positive outlook or helped you out for the goodness that you're doing for funeral service and continue to do. It may have even been more, but we won't. Yeah, we just won't talk about that. We'll just move on. And, and speaking of that, Todd, then where are we going next? Uh, the next will be um, my work in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, uh, which was uh, one of the most fascinating chapters of my career. And then uh, we end up here in Nashville at uh, the Mortuary School. And uh, I have a few comments that I'd like to share. And then, then we, I think, maybe uh, the last uh, sessions we talk about the um, spirit of funeral service and lessons learned about what is um, service to humanity in a very complicated period of history. Uh, how do we focus upon helping human beings when some people seem not to want the help? Um, and how do we promote, uh, communicate, share, tell the value, purpose, and benefit of rituals and ceremonies when someone dies? Um, so we have a few more uh, things to visit about. Well, that sounds great, Todd, and looking forward to that. All right. We'll talk All to right. you soon. Well, thank you, Rob. You're, thank you, Rob. You're welcome, Todd.